Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is starting its slow walk through the third canto of Purgatorio. We're going to be at lines one through nine, just the first nine lines. I want to slow down here and look at this introductory bit because it says so much about what Dante is doing, surprisingly, with Virgil and maybe with the comedy as a whole. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine. It is not very poetic, but it is my attempt to keep the, what do I want to say, the notion of the Florentine back there. I will admit that we are missing so much of the poetry, and I'm sorry about that. It's going to come up more in Canto 3 because I want to talk you through some of the poetry of Canto 3. It bears directly on the meaning of the passage itself. Believe me, this has happened all the way through Inferno, and up till now, it's just that now it seems as if we need that medieval Florentine poetry behind us to make full sense of what's going on. You can find my English Workaday translation on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can drop a comment there. You can print it off. You can make notes on it on your own. <laughs> Do as you like. Otherwise, the opening nine lines of the third canto of Purgatorio. Despite the fact that that crowd's instantaneous flight had scattered them across the plain, turning them toward the mountain where justice probes us, I, by contrast, pulled up close to my trusty companion. How could I have run on without him? Who would have guided my way up the mountain? He seemed as if he were torn up with self-loathing. O oh, pure conscience, and a noble one, too, how the sting of a little failure is so bitter for you. If you remember where we were, Cato had reappeared out of nowhere, had reprimanded the souls standing around listening to Casella sing one of Dante's poems, and they had all gone running up to the mountain being called lazy laggards, not doing their duty. We talked a lot about that several episodes ago, and this is the coda to that piece. Before we get to this coda from Canto 2, which now exists in Canto 3, I want to talk to you a little bit about a larger issue of comedy itself. And I'm going to start by mentioning a famous quotation from Charles Singleton. In the 1950s, Singleton was writing his grand and glorious commentaries on Dante's comedy. And I think there is one sentence of all sentences that Singleton ever wrote, poor man, all to be reduced to one sentence. But still, it's one sentence that is so insightful and so incisive and so concise that it's hard not to remember it. And this is what Singleton said. The fiction of comedy is that it is no fiction. In other words, the grandest part of the imaginative project of comedy is to imagine that it is not an imaginative project at all. The fiction of comedy 
is that Dante actually went on this walk, that he saw these things. Remember, he swore on Garion, I swear by my comedy, that I actually saw the beast of fraud. This is going to come up again and again and again in passages ahead of us. Dante is going to swear he sees certain things in front of him. So there is a constant reality claim. And Singleton's comment that this is the very ground of the structure of comedy itself, or the ground of its, to use a very fancy philosophical word, ontology, the ground of its being, is important to know. So important that Teodolinda Barolini, the great Dante scholar at Columbia, claims a kind of corollary to Singleton's comment. What she says is that the strategy of comedy is that there is no strategy. In other words, I'm not actually building anything here. I'm just telling you what I saw. So if I could just add a little coda onto Barolini's fantastic corollary to Singleton, I would say that the structure of comedy is that the structure of comedy is purely natural. It's just normal. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is what I felt. This is what happened along the way. That structure of comedy is that the structure of comedy is merely natural. Now, you're going to say, if you just think about this for a minute, well, isn't that true of, mm, let's say, Joyce's Ulysses? Or isn't that true of any book that we read? That ultimately, a book presents itself as no fiction. No, not actually. Novels tend to be pretty self-conscious that they are imaginative constructs. One of the things that's true about Dante is that we are not conscious that we are in a constructed landscape. Barolini goes on to say that part of this strategy, that there is no strategy, is that the comedy raises the very questions it wants you to pose the answers to. In other words, all the things that you wonder about, like how did Cato get on Mount Purgatory, that's the comedy prompting you to those questions. When the comedy will start to fall apart is when you can ask it questions that it doesn't prompt. In other words, if you could come at this as a historical artifact, when you come at this as metafiction, when you come at it at various levels, you sometimes start to undermine this idea. And I have done my job, I hope, at undermining the idea that the structure of comedy is that the structure of comedy is purely natural by constantly showing you the structure of these cantos, the way they're parallel, the way they're built, the way they're architected, <laughs> the way they're put together by some kind of craftsperson, Dante, I hope that in those ways, then I am pushing out beyond the limits of the questions that Dante asks. And this passage is going to push us out just a little bit beyond those limits. So let's turn to the passage itself. It starts, despite the fact that that crowd's instantaneous flight had scattered them across the plain, turning them toward the mountain where justice probes us, I, by contrast, pulled up close to my trusty companion. Let's stop right there. So we've already commented on this, that the passage is a coda to what goes on in the previous canto. But you'll notice over the course of Purgatorio that the divisions between the cantos will become more and more fluid, 
permeable. More and more, one canto will bleed into another. We're not going to have easy canto breaks. Early on in Inferno, we had very easy canto breaks. This scene, this scene, this scene, this scene. Now we're going to see this problem of bleeding over. And one of the first ways, and this will become very typical of early purgatory, one of the first ways that this bleed over happens is that you have a scene back in the previous canto, and then you get to the pilgrim's reaction in the next canto. That does two things for Dante. One, it makes his reaction as a pilgrim more foregrounded by putting his reaction into the start of the next canto. I kind of have to notice it because I've come over a canto break, but, and ironically, this is also true, it also pulls his reaction out of the scene. His reaction back there with Casella singing and Cato suddenly appearing, his reaction is muted. And here we have the fear, the pulling close to Virgil, the questioning that is going to set in in Canto 3. The pilgrim is going to become decentered several times over Cantos 3 and 4. We have it here. How could I run without him? Who would have been my guide? We get this all decentering bit. So his initial reaction of fear and scattering is saved until Canto 3. Thus, in Canto 2, we are not immersed in the pilgrim's point of view. Think back to Inferno and the moments in which Dante gets immersed in the scene with Francesca and his reactions become actually part of the scene itself. Or when he sees his relative, Jerry Del Bello, giving him an obscene gesture and then running off, his reactions become central to the action of what's going on in Inferno. If you pull it back and pull the reaction until a coda moment to a scene, you both foreground that reaction and mute it, ironically, at the same moment. Mute it in the uh, the scene itself with Casella and then foreground it as the beginning of the next canto. Which means the pilgrim is becoming both more important (laughs) and less important in Purgatorio. And this is one of the things that bothers people about Purgatorio and then Paradiso is the way that Pilgrim himself seems to change. In Inferno, he is very much reactive to the hellscape. In Purgatorio and then finally in Paradiso, he will become much less and less reactive or his reactions will be bracketed or sidebarred in some way. This both sets them, as I said, center stage and off stage at the exact same moment. But what can we make of this reaction? He pulled up close to his trusty companion. Is this that Cato has reprimanded them and they've all run off and now Dante the Pilgrim is returning to his old ways? He's he's hanging back with Virgil. He's, he's sidling up next to him for what? Comfort? It seems like it's for direction. How could have I run on without him who would have guided my way up the mountain? So it seems to be both companionship and a leadership he's looking to for Virgil, both at the same time. It's, it's really intriguing what Dante the Pilgrim is doing here. I may have an answer to it, but we're going to have to kind of go the long way to get around to an answer to it. Let's look at the last three lines of the passage. 
He, that is Virgil, seemed as if he were torn up with self-loathing. Oh, pure conscience and a noble one, too, how the sting of a little failure is so bitter for you. Here's the big one. What failure? What did Virgil do that's a failure? If we take that meta-literary reading and say that this is a way that Dante, the poet, is commenting on his previous poetry, that uh, Casella sings it and, oh, it was a waste of time, but now he's writing the real poetry the way it's commonly interpreted now. Well, then that doesn't make sense of Virgil being at fault. It seems as if it's Virgil's fault somehow. How is it Virgil's fault? Is this ironic if you accept that there is kind of a meta-literary commentary on Dante's wasting time writing about philosophy when he should have been writing about Beatrice, if you accept that, then you have to see this failure of Virgil's as kind of ironic. Well, it's not really Virgil's fault. It's Dante's fault for writing that poem. I'm not sure that that does us anything. Instead, is it intentional in some way? Dante wants us to see that it's Virgil's fault that he's been caught there standing around the edge. Let's ask a very fundamental question. Why would Virgil care about Cato's reprimand? Virgil's damned to hell. (laughs) What difference does it make to Virgil whether Cato reprimands him? Big deal, guy. Get away from me. I've already got my place (laughs) This is like Beatrice saying, I'm going to pray for you in heaven or praise you in heaven. Good. Thanks. That's not going to do me any good, but good for you. Thanks for doing that. Why would Virgil care about this reprimand? This question actually first gets asked in 1732 by a commentator, Pompeo Venturi. And in Venturi's commentary on comedy, He claims that Virgil's remorse is of his own doing. Virgil can't feel any remorse. Venturi knows this is logically makes no sense to say, oh, Virgil, he's he's somehow upset over Cato. No, that can't be it. So his self-loathing has to be self-generated. I want to tell you that I think that's too close. It's too easy an answer to say that Virgil's self-loathing is somehow self-generated. Virgil is going to come in for quite a drubbing in Cantos 3 and 4 and in several of the Cantos ahead of us beyond that. And I think that we have to think this through as it happens, because as it's happening around us, Virgil's character is actually deepening and it may be even deepening more than the pilgrims. Let's talk about that. Dante, the poet, gives this line, oh, pure conscience and a noble one, too. So you don't have anything to be ashamed of. You got a pure conscience. You got a noble conscience, Virgil. How the sting of a little failure, oh, well, maybe you do have something to be ashamed of, is so bitter for you. This seems a way in which the poet steps out and reassures us that Virgil is all okay. There are two ways you can look at this, and let me give you these two ways. These are from two eminent Dante scholars, and it's an interesting contrast between the two ways. One is Teodolinda Barolini's way, and we've already mentioned her in this podcast, so let's mention her again. (laughs) After all, she's one of the great Dante scholars out there, so let's mention her again and say that her answer here is that Dante, the poet, 
saves Virgil from the very drubbing that Dante, the poet, gave him. (laughs) In other words, Dante is writing this. Dante is having Virgil scatter off with everyone else. Dante is having Virgil feel self-loathing. Dante could make Virgil feel anything. He could make him feel uh, contemptuous. Like, what's that old man yelling at me for? He could make him feel any way possible because it's his work. So he has set it up that Virgil has come in for a drubbing. And is running away with all the other souls toward the mountain, which is already difficult. Why would Virgil run toward the mountain if he's a damned soul? I get where the redeemed souls would all scatter toward the mountain. What's up with Virgil? Barolini's point is that Dante the Poet has set Virgil up for a drubbing. And here in these lines, Dante saves him from the very drubbing he's setting him up for. We get this push-pull, like, I can do this to him, and at the same time, I can save him. That's one of the ways you can look at it. There's a second way uh, articulated by the Dante scholar Robin Kirkpatrick at Cambridge. And let me just give this to you, and then I'll explain it. Uh, The claim here is that the texture of comedy is found in just these sort of oscillations. And this may be very close to what's going on here. That is, the texture of comedy is such that we find an oscillation between, let's say, the poet and the pilgrim. The pilgrim's afraid. The pilgrim is pulling up close to Virgil. The pilgrim is wanting some kind of reassurance. Virgil is full of self-loathing. And then the poet steps forward and says, hey, you, Virgil, you got nothing to be worried about except a little failure there. The differences of the responses between poet and pilgrim allow for the nuanced emotional texture of comedy. And we may be seeing that in that passage. This may be one of the ways we can explain Virgil's sudden contempt for himself. Virgil doesn't need to be contemptuous of himself. He's already damned. There's nothing left to do here. So get this guy up the mountain like you're supposed to. Is that why Virgil's upset? Because he's not doing what he's supposed to? Well, Let me ask you this question. If Virgil didn't lead Dante up the mountain, what's the worst that's going to happen to him? (laughs) He's going to be damned to hell. Well, too late for that. What is the worst that could possibly happen to Virgil if he doesn't fulfill this mission? It's an interesting question. And one Dante doesn't answer over the course of comedy because it would cause the entire comedy to fall apart to answer that question. If Virgil just at one point said, ah, to hell with it. I'm just going, I'm going to walk back home and leave you alone and you find your own way. I'm done messing with you and all this journeying that we're doing. What would happen to him? walk back home. He'd be back where he belongs, where fate has put him, where God has put him, where God's justice has put him. Ta-da, you're done. The poem would actually fall apart. And so this emotional texture of push me, pull me, in which we both see Virgil as in for a drubbing, in for a kind of, uh, you know, hey, you're not leading the pilgrim the way you're supposed to, buddy. That kind of thing is then balanced with the poet saying, oh, pure and noble conscience. We see this kind of emotional texture as a compensation 
for perhaps some of the logic flaws that the plot can't answer. Now, let me just say one minute about that. Logic flaws. All plots, all plots, including the story you tell about you, all stories have logic faults. That is the nature of story. The nature of story is it it establishes a causal claim A causes B causes C causes D. My mom was such and such, so I am such and such, so my kids are such and such. You establish this story. The problem with causality in that way is that it leaves unanswered certain questions. (laughs) That's why you go to psychotherapy. And (laughs) not only that, the causal connections in your life are manifold and giant. The story you tell of your life is relatively linear. It is not quantum. It is relatively Newtonian because you have to. It's how your brain can process it. But in fact, all stories leave holes, leave gaps because they're forcing causality into a linearity that it does not exhibit in the real world. So, When I say that comedy has logic faults in it, I'm not kicking comedy. I'm putting it in the likes of Shakespeare, in the likes of Buddenbrooks, in the... (laughs) In the likes of Madame Bovary, I'm putting it in the, the, the company of great works of literature because that's the problem of building linear causality. It leaves things unanswered. And here, the ultimate question of why should Virgil be upset, what's he done wrong, and what would happen if he just said, well, tell her that I did something wrong, so big deal. That Those questions are all playing around, and instead, the poet, being a fine poet, offers us the emotional texture of the scene. Oh, poor Virgil, this noble Roman poet coming in for this sort of treatment in which he seems to be failing the pilgrim on his journey to the mountain. I'm not going to reread these nine lines because I'm going to save it for the next episode of the podcast and we'll do a bigger set of lines altogether. Let's just hold it because you kind of have to hold this in your mind until we get to the next set of lines anyway. So subscribe, rate, do those things that you know you need to do in order to keep this podcast running. Thank you for that kind of support. I really appreciate it. I also really appreciate the questions that come in through my website, markscarborough.com. There's some great questions that have come in that have actually caused me to rethink my own interpretations of these passages. And I so much appreciate your effort at doing that. Otherwise, keep on and I will see you back. Walking next time on in to Purgatorio Canto 3 Unlocking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then.